So, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret here. And that is, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Usually that's something you say to deflect a difficult question at a job interview, right? What's your greatest weakness? Oh, well, it's that I'm a perfectionist and I love too much and I work too hard and blah, 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 right? That's not what I'm trying to do here. I actually believe perfectionism to be a terrible and crippling vice. It's the enemy of progress and ultimately means you get less done at a worse quality rather than more done at a greater quality. That's because, eventually, your own standards become so insurmountable that you're not able to meet them. I have a friend who's a perfectionist to a greater extent than I am, and he's an incredibly talented individual, always overwhelming with fantastic ideas that just seem to flow from him ceaselessly. But because of his perfectionism, he can never get his ideas to match his own internal standards, and they never come to fruition. This is something I was worried about when starting the podcast, that I could find myself not living up to my own standards. I mean, the first episode of the podcast probably went through four or five iterations before it came out in a form that I was happy with. I just didn't think that I would run into this problem so quickly. Here we are on the second episode with only a few days for release, and I'm looking over the final draft, and I had a sinking feeling. I didn't like it. I just wasn't getting across what I wanted to. It was loose, it was vague, and I was not reflecting my own personal importance for this issue. I had so much I wanted to say about this issue that my loosely organized thoughts were just kind of flowing out of my mind with no real connection. What I had to realize is that this podcast is an ongoing podcast, and I will have more than one episode to talk about this issue, which is easily in my top three most important. So we'll get the time to cover every square inch of it in detail. So I took out large segments of what I had previously written and tossed it out. The main reason for telling you guys this is I want you to know that if for whatever reason during this episode you thought I missed something that was important, that there was something that needed to be factored in or considered with this overall discussion, do not worry because I'm sure we'll talk about it sooner or later. So with that, let me officially welcome you to the second episode of Na Plus Ultra, The Paradox of Free Speech. First, though, let me make a couple of announcements. The first, I want to thank everybody who listened to the first episode of Na Plus Ultra. As well, I want to thank anybody who wrote in or offered their feedback. I truly do appreciate it, guys. It means a lot. The next big announcement is that Naples Ultra is officially on iTunes. I submitted the podcast just before publishing the first episode, and it took some time. I thought for a second I wasn't going to be approved, but they approved the podcast, so those of you who like to get your podcasts off iTunes, then that option is readily available for you. Just search Naples Ultra on the iTunes store, and you'll find it no problem. Now, onwards to episode two.
A few people asked me, when I revealed the title for this episode, why is it a paradox? Well, it's because freedom of speech is something so simple and easy to follow on paper, but in practice we continually debate its application, meaning, and appropriate restrictions. This is the paradox of free speech. Its simple meaning bears out endless complex debates about that simple meaning. There is another shade to this paradox, but in the meantime, I want to examine the history of free speech, something that's fairly recent in our modern history, at least for all citizens. When we consider ancient civilizations, with a few notable exceptions, they were absolute monarchs. In these civilizations, freedom of expression followed a negative correlation, depending on how close you were to the source of power. Let us consider George Orwell's world from his literary masterpiece, 1984, to illustrate this example. A book I actually reread recently in anticipation for the show. If you haven't read the book, well, The World Orwell Crafts is a world run by three world superstates, which are at war with one another constantly. Our main character, Winston Smith, lives in London in one of those states called Oceania, which encompasses Great Britain, North America, South America, South Africa, and Australia. The ruling party is called Ingsoc, Newspeak for English Socialism, and they constantly examine everybody's speech through an intricate network of television screens which can tell what you're saying, what you look like, and can even tell your heart rate. They do this in order to expose any type of thought crime. If it is determined you have committed thought crime, well, then you're going to be dragged off to the Ministry of Love for re-education and execution. This oceanic society is divided up into three layers. At the top, you have the inner party members. These make up about 2% of the population. They have the most wealth and privileges. However, these wealth and privileges derive from the party, and even the slightest deviation from it will end in their execution. Then, we have the outer party, which makes up about 13% of the population. They are the middle class, and their speech is monitored on a constant basis. They have a few more escape avenues than those in the inner party, but endure a more rigorous inspection from the thought police. Lastly, we have the proles, the 85% of the lower class mass of society. These people are almost never monitored by the thought police, but if they catch you disparaging the party in the act, you better believe you're going to be vaporized. But for the most part, the thought police are unconcerned about their thoughts and expressions. Consider this as a loose model for how freedom of expression worked under ancient rulers. The closer you were to the power source, the more you had to monitor what you said. If you're a member of the king's inner circle, 
you better watch what you say at all times. Because if you don't, you can bet your bottom dollar that some ambitious scribe or compatriot is just waiting for you to slip up so they can reveal your misgivings to the king and be rewarded as such. Let's say now you're a middle-class landholder or lord. Ancient societies didn't have the same amount of rigorous observation as Oceania, so they were spared that constant observation. But the king derived his power from these landholders, as they would oftentimes make up the core of ancient armies. So, you needed to express your loyalty to the ruler when called upon. Unless you had some friends with you to back your dissension, then you were probably as good as done. Now, if you're a lowly person of the unwashed masses, then you could virtually say whatever you want. That is, provided you respected the king and whatever religious institution happened to be in power. Of course, if you're burning an effigy of the king or something like that, you're probably going to be imprisoned or executed. But for the most part, your education and consciousness of society would have been so low that you probably wouldn't have been able to put together a damning criticism of monarchical rule or anything else that might be able to damage the king's rule. Your expression didn't need to be controlled because it could never get to a point which it would be harmful to society, at least the current power structures of that society. So, to sum up, your freedom of expression was basically based on what you could get away with. And the closer you were to that power source, the more difficult it was to get away with. Now, there are two societies which are exceptions to this by and large universal rule of ancient monarchs. And those are the Roman Republic and the ancient Greek democracies. Both of these systems foster freedom of expression models which are light years ahead of their ancient counterparts, but by our standards are outdated. But hey, we all have to start somewhere, right? In ancient Greek democracies, only certain people were given the right to vote and speak in the assembly on their opinion of the best way forward. These people were landholding males. However, if you weren't in the ruling class, you probably wouldn't have been killed or tortured for disparaging that ruling class. Yeah, unless you were a slave. People who exist outside this ruling class, mainly women and males who don't own land, they didn't have any power in affecting the way forward, but at least you could say what you wanted without too much fear of reprisal. There are, of course, exceptions. Remember, we talked about Socrates in the last episode, who was executed for doing nothing but asking questions. But for the most part, though, these ancient civilizations started cultivating the values we carry forward into our modern era. When we look at the Roman Republic, we see a far more rigid society. Politically speaking, senators, magistrates, and other government officials could freely debate in the various assemblies. However, 
Rome demanded a lot from its citizens, and there certainly was a Roman ideal all members of society were supposed to look up to and follow. These societal expectations probably more than anything stifled freedom of speech in that society, but that is all just purely speculation. Nonetheless, though, the Roman Republic was an improvement over ancient kings. Fast forward now to the Renaissance, when finally more enlightened ideas were once again infiltrating Western society, and the tyranny of the Middle Ages was finally coming to a close. For the purposes here, I largely lump together ancient monarchs with medieval kings, because there wasn't a huge amount of difference in between the way the two operated, besides operating within different religious institutions. During the Renaissance, new republics started appearing over time, and finally, great works of art and literature were making their appearances in the public consciousness, while great philosophers and thinkers were finally getting the opportunity to share and publish their work freely. In generation after generation, these ideas were absorbed by the population, and finally, people started to grow more aware of the society that surrounded them. I have this book on my coffee table called The History of Philosophy. This book details the first philosopher ever all the way to our modern times, and it's a great way to see how philosophical thought developed over the course of human history. During the Middle Ages, virtually all the philosophical work that was published and survives to this era are a defense of the king or the church with an argument about how great they are and how they're the only ones capable of overseeing society. The philosophers of the Renaissance are a massive departure from that tradition. These people were thinking about other ways to construct society because they finally had the freedom to do so. It was from these philosophers our modern world was born. Then the Enlightenment era came, and we were greeted with philosophers such as Locke, Jeremy Bentham, and John Stuart Mill, who in turn laid the groundwork for what we call modern liberal values, values such as freedom of expression, freedom of belief, freedom of assembly, and so on. The American Revolution then led these values to be enshrined in the official law of a country. The values of this revolution inspired other revolutions in European countries until eventually these ideals became the dominant form of thought throughout Western countries. Now, I personally don't really consider freedom of expression, at least in our modern sense, to be fully ushered in until women were finally granted suffrage. In 1917, here in Canada, and in 1920, in the United States. This finally allowed the majority of the population to be able to express themselves politically. While there was still work to be done, I mean, Native Americans wouldn't get the right to vote until the 1960s. For now, though, 
let's just choose 1920 as our demarcation point for the era of our modern conception of freedom of speech. Clearly, it's been quite a road up to this point. The main purpose of this exercise is to show that, considering the course of human history, freedom of speech is a relatively new concept, as well to show the battles that have happened over the course of some thousands of years to make free speech something that is enjoyed in all Western democracies. I personally believe freedom of expression is one of the most important values in our society today. Consider the progress that has been made in the last nearly 100 years since 1920. Human beings have advanced to technological heights thought previously unimaginable to people who lived in 1820. The medical advancements that have been made, the access to information that has never been possible, the ease of communication. I strongly believe freedom of expression is a huge contributor to those advancements. But not only do we have technological advancements, but for the first time maybe ever in human history, we are advancing socially. We are becoming more tolerant and accepting of our fellow humans. Women are starting to walk freely in the annals of power in our society and rise up to become great leaders in all fields of human development. People can do, act, and love the way they've always wanted to. Of course there are problems. There will always be problems. Nothing is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But now, more human beings live in freedom, safety, security, and prosperity than in any point in our history. Sometimes, I just wish we would sit back and reflect on that. That is, we have made more progress in the last hundred years than the previous 6,000 years of human history combined. Can't we just, for once, be happy and celebrate our progress and accomplishments? In any case, though, I give you this lengthy introduction to free speech for one reason, to convince us that now that we finally have freedom of speech, let's not take it away. We are witnessing a great battle unfold before us, a battle for the conception and application of free speech, a cornerstone for our society. Sadly, though, this isn't the first battle over free speech, and it certainly won't be the last. During this battle, I've seen and heard things that I never thought I would see and hear. And most of it is coming from people who are in my generational age group. For example, I was reading a recent news article about the shooting which happened at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado. This story had been published about a week after the shooting, so we knew most of the details and the motive behind the shooter. The article wasn't political in nature, more so just reporting, but it was featured on a left-leaning news site. So I looked down through the comments to see what people are saying about this. In the top-rated comments, there was a comment in third or fourth place 
which was posted by a young woman who looked to be in her late 20s. It was a comment zone that was using Facebook as the tool in which you would generate your account to comment on this website. Her comment reads as follows, quote, We really need to crack down on that First and Second Amendment. It is clear that only terrorists use them as a shield, end quote. I could not believe what this person had just said. My jaw literally dropped. How can anyone agree that the First Amendment hides terrorism so we have to get rid of it? Or, sorry, crack down on it. And then, when you consider this was the third or fourth most highly rated comment about the news story, you could see that this person was not alone. Now, look, when it comes to her statement about the Second Amendment, being Canadian, I have far less invested in the debate around gun control and legislation than those in the United States do. This issue is very uniquely an American one and has a lot of emotion and passion wrapped up around it in both the pro and anti-gun control camps. In the future, I would love to do an episode about guns, but for the meantime, I wanted to be fair and address the issue about the Second Amendment that was brought up in the comment and isolate it. This also holds up hope for me that the comment was so highly favored because it was disparaging the Second Amendment, which I am very used to seeing on left-wing sites. But this is the first time I had ever seen anyone disparaging the first. In any case, I thought to myself, wow, this woman is a reactionary masquerading as a progressive. For those of you who don't know, a reactionary is a politically charged slam term. At its core, it means someone who wants to move society backwards in time to an earlier date versus a progressive who wants to move society forwards in time. To call someone who sees themselves as a progressive a reactionary is considered something that is not particularly nice. However, given the definition of the word, I think it's appropriate. Consider she wanted to move society back to a time when free speech was cracked down upon, as we saw was the case in nearly every period of human history but our own. This is the thing, though. This isn't an isolated incident. More and more, all over the world, people are standing up and wanting there to be crackdowns on freedom of expression in one form or another. For example, a recent Pew Research survey came out detailing that a full 40% of millennials wanted to outright ban offensive speech. Fortunately, still not a majority, but this was an American survey, and Americans live in a country which does not have hate speech laws. Unfettered free speech is an ideal sought after in the individualistic United States more than any other country. So I imagine if we did the poll in Canada, the UK, France, Germany, or Greece, the numbers of millennials wanting to ban offensive speech would be in the majority. 
this controversy was actually boiled down really cleanly and easily for me in what is certainly the best animated show so far this decade, Rick and Morty. If you haven't seen the show yet, it is centralized around two characters. Morty, a socially awkward but very principled 14-year-old boy, and his sociopathic genius mad scientist grandpa, Rick, who has the knowledge to craft amazing works of scientific genius as well as travel to alternate dimensions and planets. In the scene, whose audio I will play for you in a second, Rick and Morty are waiting with their family in an alien hospital and for their dad to recover from an alien disease. To kill time, Rick installs an interdimensional cable box on the TV in order to get TV from different periods of time and space. While watching a violent TV show, Summer, Morty's sister, remarks that this is gross and TV shouldn't just rely on violence. Morty then responds in the following exchange. Does all interdimensional TV have to rely on juvenile violence? Well, Summer, maybe people that create things aren't concerned with your delicate sensibilities. You know, maybe the species that communicate with each other through the filter of your comfort are less evolved than the ones that just communicate. Maybe your problems are your own to deal with, and maybe the public giving a shit about your feelings is a one-way ticket to extinction! Jeez, Morty. I take it Katherine Heffelfinger hasn't texted you back yet? I don't want to talk about it. I love how Morty frames this debate. He's perfectly articulated its two sides. One side believes we should filter our speech in order to prevent things that might make another person uncomfortable or offended, while the other side believes we should just communicate, and it is more important to get your message across rather than eating up cognitive resources in the task of interpreting another party's feelings. Both camps in this controversy believe they are doing what's best for society. However, one side seems to be a bit more overzealous in the projection of its concept of human communication. Those who advocate this position generally find it appalling that someone would communicate without first filtering their speech through another's comfort. By not following this prescribed doctrine, it will lead to punishment through whatever means they have available at their disposal. For me, filtering your speech in this manner is a clear violation of the principle of freedom of speech, which we will discuss later, but also not particularly effective, as your message may get lost in translation or change to the point where it is unrecognizable. It is far better just to say what you want to say. Instilling such a filter would effectively ban offensive speech. And in banning defensive speech, you create a minefield which might blow up on any one of us for any given reason. First, there is the question of who decides what's offensive. I, for one find the idea of banning offensive speech abhorrently offensive. Should I then get to ban that speech? If not, why not? Do not enough people agree with me? Am I not a member of the group who gets to decide what's offensive and what is not? 
perhaps this speech isn't offensive enough to qualify for banning. If that's the case, who decides what's offensive enough to get banned? And who holds those people accountable? For the most part, though, I think governments know that banning offensive speech in the modern era is a task which is nearly impossible. So most countries develop hate speech laws to ban only the most offensive speech. As stated before, the United States is one such country that does not have hate speech laws. And this is one thing the Americans certainly have correct. For this is in the most accordance with the principle of free speech, which is your ability to speak your mind without hindrance or harm to yourself. But every country crafts laws around freedom of speech, which take into account varying degrees of this principle, making it quite possible to trample over the principle of free speech, but not trample over the law of it. This is exactly what hate speech laws do. As it might not surprise you, I am clearly against hate speech laws, both in this country and throughout the world. But what might surprise you is that I wasn't always. In fact, I understand maybe more than anyone the want to craft hate speech laws to protect individuals. Free speech is such a beautiful thing, but you have to take it as a whole, warts and all. It makes sense to say, man, free speech would be perfect if we could just somehow remove all those warts. You know, stop those neo-Nazis, those KKK members, and other extremes from using this beautiful vessel. However, in attempting to remove the warts and imperfections from free speech, all you will result in doing is disfiguring the concept beyond all recognition. The aim instead should be to realize that the imperfections enhance the beauty by contrast. That while yes, there may be imperfections, there is far more beauty in free speech, and that beauty stands out brighter because of it. The fact is that while hate speech laws may have good intentions, in practice they always result in more harm than good. Let's take one example from 2011 here in Canada that really made me question hate speech laws here. This case involves a man from the breathtaking province of Saskatchewan. It's not really that breathtaking. This man happened to be an evangelical pastor by the name of Bill Whatcott. One day in 2001, he decided to take his message to the streets and spread it far and wide. What is his message? That gays will burn in hell. On the streets of the thriving metropolis of Saskatoon, not really a metropolis, this pastor started handing out pamphlets proudly declaring that gays will burn in hell and God will abandon the country. He was fined under our hate speech laws to the tune of $7,500 when the court sentenced him in 2005. He promptly appealed this fine, and as a result, a lengthy court battle ensued, 
which he finally lost in 2011 after it was brought all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. So what, you might say, he got what he deserved. And being an atheist, I certainly don't have much love for this man or his inflammatory message. So on the surface, I agree with that sentiment. However, when you look deeper into the outcome, some disturbing things arise. The first is that his case didn't hurt his message, but helped it. As media outlets descended onto this case and published regular updates. As a result, this pasture was offered up a powerful new platform to continue spreading his message. This created an air of legitimacy as two sides started to form around the pasture, an anti-side and a pro-side. These debates then raged in between these two groups constantly until the trial's conclusion. Here's what I ask. Would not the alternative have been better? This pastor takes to the streets. He hands out 50 pamphlets. 49 people crumple up the pamphlets and tell him he's a lunatic. And one person agrees with the message. The next day, all 50 people who have received the pamphlet go on about their lives. In two weeks, everyone has forgotten about the pasture, even the one who agreed with his message, as he trundles along trying to preach a message that is reviled and outdated. Instead of having thousands of people defend him, he has none. Instead of readily wasting government resources, they could have been better spent. Most of all, though, this paragraph never would have been written, and I don't have this ridiculous memory kicking around up in my head. As I said before, the whole incident resulted in more harm than good. It would have been better just to have forgotten about it and moved on with our lives. By trying to censor offensive speech, you end up with the exact opposite result. You amplify it. This has been borne out time and time again. Whether it's a religious institution trying to ban speech on the grounds it is blasphemous, or a government trying to crack down on various forms of religious expression, whether it's a left-leaning feminist trying to silence or censor the opinions of her critics, or a right-leaning politician who wants to delete that really embarrassing tweet. All that happens when you try and censor speech you don't like is that that speech gets amplified. This effect is often called the Streisand effect. Wow, I can't believe the first episode was longer than this. But I'd like to finish this episode by bringing up two important points. First off, I alluded to the fact that this is not the first fight that we've had over freedom of speech. In fact, there is another fight that is still ongoing and one which I actually believe is more important than this one. This is the debate over money's role in freedom of speech and political influence. There are two examples I want to use to illustrate this. One is the creation of media monopolies, and the other 
is the United States Supreme Court decision of Citizens United. When it comes to media monopolies, this is an issue which is kind of sunken underneath the surface. It was particularly popular in the late 90s and the early 2000s. One good example of this would have been Conrad Black here in Canada, a media mogul who tried to get a little bit too big for his britches. He continually bought out news outlets in an effort to make his conglomerate the strongest. Eventually, his effort was challenged in an anti-monopoly pushback. People argued that if you gave one person too large a megaphone, they could essentially shout over those opinions which they didn't like and effectively crush freedom of expression. I bring this case up for two reasons. First off, I think a battle like this might be in the horizon. I don't know, it's just a feeling of mine. Things like this seem to rise up every 15 or 20 years or so, and it's been about that time, or it will soon have been that time. So it's something I want people to think about and keep on their radar. As well, it will tie in to the question for this week's episode. The next is the continuing battle going on in the United States over the Supreme Court decision of Citizens United. For those of you who don't know, the crux of this Supreme Court decision was in essence to make money equivalent to speech. Therefore, if your money equals speech, you then have the right to give as much money to whatever politician or political cause you want because, essentially, you're just practicing a form of free speech. This has allowed third parties to influence the American system of government with undue amounts of power, and it has seriously hurt and crippled their country. I remember when the Supreme Court battle around Citizens United was actually being fought in the courts. I was in college at the time. In fact, I was taking a course called The Politics of Human Rights. This course was taught by a man who I can only describe as a philosopher hermit. He lived up on the mountains somewhere far away. Every time he'd come to class, he'd have bushy hair and beard and be decked out in like outdoor hiking regalia. He also had no idea about technology and anytime we had to use a computer, a student had to help him out with it. Regardless though, he was an excellent lecturer and teacher and an extraordinarily wise individual. For our midterm projects, he gave us a lot of leeway in terms of how we could conduct them. Considering that Citizens United was being debated at the time, I decided to do my project on the court decision. In it, I argued that Citizens United was an appalling blow to human rights and liberty. My argument was as follows. Essentially, the rights outlined in the American Constitution are inalienable. In fact, the Founding Fathers explicitly state that these rights are derived to you from God. Nobody can take them away from you. Not the government, not your employer, not even you yourself. By equating money with speech, 
what you have essentially done is made an unalienable right alienable. Because if you have no money, it therefore follows that you have no freedom of speech. This is extraordinarily inconsistent with the American Constitution, and therefore Citizens United should be struck down on an unconstitutional basis. I bring this up not only because what happens in America is going to affect what happens here in Canada very significantly, but I also want my neighbors to the south to succeed. I want them to overcome the tyranny to constant campaigning and political donations this court decision has resulted in. As well, I bring up these two issues in a larger holistic sense to show that the war over offensive speech is not the only battle being raged in this realm and may not be the most important one, but it is the most recent and most present on all our minds. Now, I want to finish the episode by talking about one thing. That is the other shade to this paradox of free speech that I alluded to earlier. One of the central issues around free speech is just how many protections your speech has. For example, legally you have the freedom to express just about anything you want. You have the freedom to insult people, to insult marginalized groups, to say the most vile things that you have concocted. Upon hearing this, others have the right to respond to you verbally. They have the right to insult you, to debate you, to question you, or to not respond at all. You then have the right to respond to their response. Eventually, though, things will break down and one person or another will claim that their freedom of speech has been violated. This is the other shade of the paradox of free speech. That is, if everyone has the right to say whatever they want, why do people inevitably claim their speech has been violated? So, to examine this, let's take a real-world example that has been hitting the headlines recently. Clementine Ford an Australian feminist critic and writer, came into the spotlight recently when she got an individual who insulted her fired from his job. Ford has a particularly scaly reputation on the internet, known for needlessly ramping up the toxicity of any article or conversation she is involved with, as well for being particularly scathing and insulting towards those who may disagree with her. The particular case we're talking about today starts when a man over Facebook comments to Ford calling her a slut. Ford then uses the information on his Facebook page to find his employer and then subsequently contact them and tell them about their exchange. As a result, this individual was fired. This case has evolved into a particularly robust debate, shall we call it, about who was in the right and who was in the wrong and whether or not freedom of speech was violated. I, for one, believe it to be extraordinarily obvious that freedom of speech was violated in this instant as well. Though neither side is blameless, 
Ford deserves the lion's share of the blame. Let me tell you why. Because, essentially, there are two realms. The realm of speech and the realm of action. In the realm of speech, you're able to say pretty much whatever you want. However, once you cross into the realm of action, it's a whole different story. As a rule of thumb, I generally feel the one who has crossed from speech to action first is the one who is losing that particular debate or argument. That is because it almost always results in the immediate loss of any moral high ground. Back to the case at hand, this guy clearly isn't the nicest individual. And if you want to defeat someone in a debate, you don't look to insult them. Instead, you look to counter their ideas and arguments. With that being said, calling someone a slut is entirely in the realm of speech, and Ford has the absolute right to respond within that realm. Unfortunately, by going and calling and trying to get this person fired and succeeding, she has ultimately exited the realm of speech into the realm of action. From a moral standpoint, calling someone an insult is not a nice thing to do, but it doesn't cause any permanent physical damage, whereas getting someone fired and potentially ruining their life results in a net loss of good in the world. To put this another way, when you are in the realm of speech, you're just waving your arms around in front of someone's face. When you enter the realm of action, then you are punching them in the face. So, in our example here, the commenter was waving their arms, extremely rudely, I grant you, in front of Ford's face. But Ford responded by effectively punching him in the face. And in our judicial system, the one who punches first is the one who is at fault. So, to recap, responding to someone who is in the realm of speech by moving it into the realm of action is a violation of free speech, as well as it will oftentimes result in the immediate loss of any moral high ground and also make you the instigator rather than the victim. Now, I can see two counter-arguments which will formulate themselves. The first is, is that I will be accused of absolving someone who is not blameless. Napoleon once said that those who wish to avoid war should avoid the print pricks that precede cannon fire. So, I get the argument, and the insulter certainly isn't blameless, and I don't claim to ever have believed they are. But our everyday lives are not governed by the laws of Napoleonic warfare, and we have to consider what's a reasonable response to an action. Punching someone in the face for waving their arms is not a reasonable response, just as getting someone fired for insulting you isn't either. The second counter-argument will be, But Spencer, the insulter already crossed into the realm of action, because speaking is an action, and you should be held responsible for your actions. I find this argument to be rather disingenuous. We all know speech and action 
are not the same things. You're not going to go to jail for saying, I want to murder, insert group du jour. But you are going to go to jail for actually murdering people. We constantly say we should judge others by their actions, not their words. In fact, judging someone just based on their words is considered a bit naive, is it not? I remember in George R.R. R. Martin's latest book, A Dance with Dragons, the phrase, words are wind, shows up approximately a billion times. So much so, in fact, that his editor told him he should edit out all the instances of the phrase but one, and replace it with something else. George didn't buy it, and the phrase remains in this book, for time immemorial. He points out one clear thing, though, by using this phrase over and over and over again. That is, don't judge another person by what they say. Judge them by how they act. The fact is, the physical and the verbal exist in different realms and are treated as such. Words are not the same as actions. There we go. Even though I could say more for now, I'm going to have to leave it here. The purpose of this episode was to hopefully give you some insight into the importance of free speech, how lucky we are to have it in our modern times, and how it should be defended in its purest form. So I appeal to my generation. Don't let the temptation to fall to censorship overtake you. Whether that censorship is overt or covert, Many generations of human history have fought long and hard for this right. The right which has delivered us so much progress. So, let us not voluntarily give it up. It should be our role instead to expand and enshrine this freedom so that we might lay the road for future generations and so we might make it possible that no human being will have to live without this right ever again in our long history. This concludes the second episode of Na Plus Ultra. I hope you'll stick around for the second segment of the show and come back for next week's episode, Shadows on the Wall. Until then, you guys take care, and I'll see you in the second segment. Hello and welcome everyone to the second segment of Naples Ultra and what's really our first official time that we've done this. So I'm pretty excited and I'd like to just get started. Let's move right into it. Our first submission comes from, wait for it, my lovely wife Jasmine, whom I asked to listen to this podcast before it went public. Now, Jasmine isn't the most politically inclined person, so it was nice to get her feedback. I really wanted to see what someone who wasn't really into politics and philosophy would think about the podcast. When I asked her to give me her thoughts, one thing she said really stood out to me, and I thought that I would share it here. She said to me, Spencer, I don't know if I'm on board with your whole idea of inspiration. Yes, there are politicians who are inspiring those they want to gain votes from, 
but this has existed for years and is not new. This is something I certainly agree with. And there is no way for us to tell if any politician is really genuine in what they believe or is not. There are ways, however, we can make inferences, for example, how well they followed through on their stated promises, how do they react to difficult questions, how do they react to their opponents. These are all factors that we can draw upon to assess how genuine a politician is or not. You know, I think we've gotten pretty good at spotting the fake plastic robotic politicians because it's kind of what we're all really confronted with on a daily basis, except for a few notable exceptions. And that's why those exceptions stand out so much more. But she's not wrong in warning us to be wary of those who would seek to manipulate our positive emotions for their own personal gain. To address the second factor here, inspiration is indeed not new. I would say there are two emotions which chiefly motivate our political actions. Those are fear and inspiration. Both motivate people to get up and vote, but for very different reasons. What I think makes this wave of new politicians feel new is one, their authenticness, and two, it is that politics has been dominated for so long by fear, especially in a post-9-11 world. With that being said, we can easily name a few political leaders who used inspiration. JFK, FDR, even Ronald Reagan, who is one of the few politicians who was able to mix both fear and inspiration interchangeably. Regardless, though, I feel like I should have framed the issue more as inspiration is making a comeback, rather than suggesting it was entirely new. In any case, thank you for the submission, Jasmine, and let's move on to our next submission, which comes from Rin Matthews, or, as he signs his email, Rin Setsuka. He writes, Dear Spencer, Living in the U.S., it seems that every time there is a shooting, the political left harps about gun control, while the political right advocates a reworked mental health system. The problem with both of these solutions, though, is terrorism. With the growing use of bombs, San Bernardino slash Boston, as well as smuggled weapons, Paris, it seems that these laws would do nothing to dissuade acts of terror. In addition, these terrorists are not mentally ill and are simply following an extreme interpretation of their religion. An idea that is not often brought up is the fact that China has some of the strictest gun control of any country in the world, as well as a secure border, unlike the U.S. and France, yet they still have mass killings. But the attackers use knives. They often manage to kill a large number regardless but are easily dispatched once the police arrive. My question is, is there any way to prevent terrorism or at least reduce the scope of it? Canada doesn't seem to have the same problems America has, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how to reduce this problem. Thanks, Rin Setsuka. Wow, I cannot believe it took me until now to realize where Rin Setsuka comes from and what that is a reference of. Thanks, Rin, for writing in. Now, there are two separate issues here. One is terrorism, and the other is gun control. Let's focus on them kind of separately first, because I do see them as separate issues. So, let's deal with terrorism first. Terrorism is an issue 
like most issues, that I see through a historical lens. So I go all the way back to the beginning of the religion. Established by Muhammad and his subsequent successor caliphs, Islam exploded onto the world scene in the 7th century. After an amazing series of conquests, and these conquests are quite underrated in my book, these are conquests on par with Alexander the Great, but after these conquests, Islam had been spread across the Middle East, North Africa, and southern Spain. During these conquests, Islamic armies would beat both armies from the Byzantine Empire and Sassanid Empire, two of the greatest and most prosperous empires the world had ever seen. This was absolutely stunning. No one had ever expected anything like this to have emerged out of the Arab Peninsula. In fact, the Romans believed that you could just put lions on the border between the Roman Empire and the Arab nomadic tribes, and those lions would be sufficient enough to guard the border from any incursions. After these battles and conquests, Islam then went on to found a series of prosperous empires that, in comparison to Dark Ages Europe, were enlightened and prosperous. During this time, the Middle East was the most learned and scientifically advanced region in the world. If you fast forward 600 years after these conquests, you'll see that Muslim countries were nowhere near as extreme as they are now. Take the Ottoman Empire, for example. In the 1500s, Jews would actually flee Western Europe because there was an ongoing Jewish prosecution at the time, and they would seek refuge in the Ottoman Empire. Who would gladly take them in? The point of all this is to say that the Middle East and the religion of Islam were not as fundamentalist as they are now. So the question then is, what was changed and how do we change it back? For me, I see the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the redrawing of much of the borders in the Middle East after World War I as significant factors to the radicalization of Islam. This had the effect of removing the only entity who had any kind of ability to enforce the tenets of the religion, and had the effect of putting together whole swaths of people who didn't want to live together. The end result of this equation was a huge power vacuum filled in with all these different ethnic groups whom each had a different interpretation of Islam. Someone had to fill this power vacuum. And while it took a long time, it looks like radical Islam, specifically in the form of Wahhabism, is filling that power vacuum. And this internal struggle has also spilled out from the Middle East and has affected virtually every country in the world. Also consider that Christianity and Islam are rivals. Don't think they are? They are the two most dominant religions on the planet, with a long history of clashing and trying to get the best over one another. There's always a rivalry between the number one and number two spots in just about anything. Coke and Pepsi, Los Angeles and San Francisco, Germany and France. When you have two entities trying to vie for the top spot in just about any form of human interaction, there's going to be a rivalry in between them. By the way, L.A. comes out on top of San Francisco in that comparison. Just, just so you know. There's no question 
there's a rivalry between Christianity and Islam. And with Western countries synonymous with Christianity, continually increasing their technological capabilities and economic structures, and the Middle Eastern countries falling continually behind, I submit Islamic countries felt like they were losing in that rivalry. With the exception of the past 150 years or so, Islam has always had one country or empire that was considered one of the top powers in the world, if not the top power in the world. Now, Islam no longer has any great world empires that could advance their agenda and their future looked bleak. Many turned to religion to find the way forward. One such country took advantage of this religious soul-searching and used this power vacuum, which we talked about before, to fund and export their extreme version of Islam, Wahhabism. This country is Saudi Arabia. All of the current radical Islamist groups can trace their roots back to Saudi Wahhabism. If we want to combat terrorism, the first thing we need to do is stop giving Saudi Arabia a free pass. This country holds the lion's share of the blame for the rise of Islamic extremism. And they have not felt any negative consequences for doing so. In fact, they expect other countries to clean up their mess for them. They contribute almost nothing to the fight against ISIS, and they refuse to take any refugees from the conflict in Syria, despite the fact this country is very close to the conflict and has the wealth and resources to take care of these refugees. The easiest way to tell our leaders are not at all serious about battling ISIS is their continual refusal to give anything but a free pass to Saudi Arabia. So we talked about the factors around why Islam got radicalized. The question now is what do we do about it? Specifically, what do we do about ISIS, who is the main flashpoint in this question of Islamic terrorism? Let's call a spade a spade here. ISIS is a moral cancer, a tumor which scars the face of our planet, and it is incompatible with life in the 21st century. One way or another, it has to be defeated. Here's my fear, though. If we just go into the region and eliminate that tumor through the use of military force, something we could easily do, by the way, what will happen is that the residue of that tumor will just enter the bloodstream of the region and be carried off into other sections of the Middle East, resulting in more tumors cropping up. The only way this tumor can be excised successfully is if forces in the region do it themselves. Islamic radicalism is a civil war within Islam itself. Like we talked about before, we have all these disparaging groups trying to fill that power gap, and right now, radical Islam is doing the best job of it. I personally hope that all Islamic countries will adopt secular democracies as we have here. And there are plenty of Muslims who want the exact same thing. But there are also others who wish that Islamic identity be defined by one thing, its extreme adherence to its religious doctrine. For us in the West, the most effective thing we can do 
is locate those who are on the modern side of this civil war to empower opposing parties in this power vacuum. We need to empower them both militarily and intellectually, give them the help to raise the consciousness of their fellow Muslims and give them the tools they need to fight when they need to. The only way to win a war on radical Islam is to win the hearts and minds of the people in the region. If we cannot do that, then we will be doomed to fight ISIS in one form or another for years to come. Now, moving on to gun control. Honestly, I want to do a show all about gun control in the future, so I'm going to keep this answer far less detailed and a little bit more vague than the previous discussion on radical Islam. You can't give away everything too early, right? In any case, I'm convinced that in the United States, gun control will never happen. There is no way to build up the political capital to get it done and be able to create a system which has a broad consensus around guns. There is no foreseeable solution which would get everyone on board who needs to be on board. Every time I hear about some horrific and tragic mass shooting that happens in the States, I think, wow, this will lead to some changes, but they never come. Here in Canada, I personally feel that our gun laws are tough but fair. It is difficult to acquire a gun license here, but if you have a clean record, a gun license is attainable to anybody who wants to get it. In order to get a license, you must first pass a safety training session. Then you apply. Then you are screened, and after a 28-day waiting period, you can get your gun. There are also some restrictions around guns. For example, automatic weapons are restricted, and magazine capacity is capped at 10 rounds. However, guns can still be bought and sold illegally here. And when it comes to your question about lone wolf attacks and specifically reducing those type of terrorist activities, there is virtually no way to stop it unless you have prior information. Unfortunately, there isn't much you can do anywhere to stop someone who wants to buy a firearm legally or illegally and then take that firearm on a killing spree. This is a hard truth we just have to accept. What we shouldn't do is let those individuals change our society or force us to live in fear because of them. When it comes to monitoring these individuals and trying to see what kind of information we can glean from them, that's a whole different conversation. But for the most part, in reference to these lone wolf attacks, I don't think there's anything you can do to effectively reduce terrorism. The long and short of it is, the ideal gun control regime would be able to filter out those who would be potentially dangerous while making it possible for those who want to get guns for the purposes of self-defense or hunting can acquire a firearm. No country has a perfect system, at least not yet. I feel like countries such as America make firearms too easily available, while countries like Japan and the UK do too much to impinge on that access. Because I do firmly believe that if you're a responsible owner of a firearm, then you should have the freedom to be able to get one. So, 
you won't be surprised to hear that I think Canada has a good system figured out. Maybe even the best so far. Woo! Canada's number one! We're number one! Anyway, Rin, I hope that somewhere in that last ten minutes or so, there was an answer to your question. Feel free to follow up if you think I missed anything or want some more details. Anyway, our next question comes from Matt Benz. He writes, The topic I would like to discuss is whether or not technological progress will inevitably lead societies organically moving towards communism, and is it possible that we can trace the failure of 20th century communism to the lack of technology? This is a thought that has been rolling around in my head for quite some time now, and I feel like this would be a great topic to discuss on your show. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean, do you think with the increase in mechanical labor leading to both an increase in resources available to humans and a decrease in demand for human labor will lead to a more socialist program being implemented to the point where societies will eventually achieve a mirror of Marx's vision. The reason I think this will happen is that capitalism's whole point of existing is to try and distribute a finite amount of resources, but when resources stop being finite, like in a post-scarcity economy, what then becomes the point of a system like capitalism? This idea is not something that will happen anytime soon, but maybe if a machine that is capable of changing the molecular composition of matter, literally turn garbage into food, this will be an actual thing that might happen. Now, like I said earlier, this type of technology isn't going to happen anytime soon, but it is on its way. We as humans have successfully done this type of thing on a very small level before, so this might be an issue we will end up facing as a species in the next century. And if that technology did exist, how could a government justify not using it? How could a government justify not enacting social reforms for everything when resources are literally endless? P.S. While writing this, I realized I pretty much described the setting of the movie Wally, with machines doing everything for humans. Now, this is a fascinating question, which is, will technology advance to the point where it makes borders and governments obsolete and a more communistic society will organically grow out of it? I think this is a real possibility. In fact, I was reading an article recently from a professor of philosophy at Harvard University who believed it would be possible for all labor to have become fully automated by 2050. In that world, he argued, government would just have to give them money or food to sustain themselves. So, in a way, that's kind of like a communistic society, but this is more of a scenario which I am deeply terrified of, which is that the demand for human labor is non-existent, but the resources humans need to consume are too finite for us. 
this would be some kind of dystopian future where we're all subjugated by robots or something like that, or there's a small upper ruling elite that have all the resources because they own all the robots, and everyone who doesn't own robots is some kind of scummy lower class that has stepped on. I don't know. These are all just kind of dystopian futures that are coming into my mind. But for me, your question conjures up an image of hyper-advanced Native Americans. Loose organizations of people based on their proximity to one another, all taking what they need and working to fulfill their own appointed needs in society, which I think would probably be closer to what Marx envisioned in his own communist utopia. I did want to say one thing, though. That is, you're right, in that capitalism is a system of distribution for finite resources. But if the resources became infinite, I don't think that would result in the collapse of capitalism. In fact, it might result into its complete shift into overdrive. Capitalism thrives on the consumption of said resources as well. And when you consume endlessly, this might have the effect of just giving a car some sort of super fuel which allows it to go faster and forever. So if resources for whatever reason become infinite, I don't necessarily believe that will lead to the establishment of a more communistic society, more so that it could go either way. Now, I don't see technology as necessarily contributing to the failure of 20th century communism. 20th century communism really contributed to its own failure. If anything, 20th century communism was a mega, mega political, economic, and human catastrophe. But that doesn't mean the idea that Marx set out himself was bad. Just the way it was implemented, was taken, warped, and transformed into something that basically doesn't resemble its source material in the remotest sense. What I do think is a real possibility that maybe a hundred years from now, when the communism of the 20th century is a distant memory, someone in the future might pick up Marx and reread it and think, you know what, this guy was way ahead of his time. Now I can take what he was actually talking about and implement it given the resources, technology, and structures we have in this future society. Just because 20th century experience with communism was a failure, doesn't mean that 22nd century experience with communism will be a failure as well. In any case, thanks Matt, I hope that answered your question. Our next submission comes from Eugene, or as his email appears in my inbox, Yevgeny Nimitsev. In any case, Yevgeny writes, I would love to hear your take on feminism. What do you think about it? Does the movement promote radical ideas? Are men and women equal in today's Western societies? Should feminism be funded by taxpayers' money? By the way, I am a guy, and I have a very skeptical opinion of feminism, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Sincerely, Eugene. I wondered how long it would take before I got a question about the rise of radical feminism, or as some people call it, third-wave feminism. In the show, we talked about the war on offensive speech, and Radical feminists are playing a huge role in perpetuating this war. What I do want to say, though, 
is that the feminists of today are not the feminists of yesterday. In the last 20 years or so, there's been a substantial change in feminist doctrine, tactics, and writings. Now, look, before I go further, I want to say I am a married man. I love my wife dearly, and I truly believe she is capable of changing the world. One of the goals for our marriage is that we work together towards fulfilling each other's long-term hopes and dreams, and nothing will make me happier than when she fulfills her dreams. So, I want my wife to have as many opportunities available to her in society as possible, and I know she wants the same for me. Lucky for me, then, she's not on board with the current wave of feminists. I think it's different for someone like her. She was born and raised for the first part of her life in a third world country, India. She then moved to the United States, and now she lives here in Canada. So, for someone like her, she knows how much better off we are in Western society. She would rather spend her time trying to achieve gender equality in India rather than trying to achieve gender equality in a country which already has it. As I stated before, the modern wave of feminism is vastly different than the iterations which came before it. In fact, I recently went back and reread some of the works of the very first feminist thinkers, such as Mary Wollstonecraft and Olympe de Gouges. There is a huge departure in the writing styles of these older feminists than in the newer ones. Older feminist thinkers talk about inclusion, liberty, and freedom. Newer feminist thinkers talk about how women must function in society in order not to be oppressed and not to oppress other women. They talk about certain ways to act and which topics are okay and which are not. In other words, one talks about freedom, the other talks about control. I don't know about you, but I'm going to always side with freedom over control. And I do not have a lot of respect for people who tell others how to live their lives, especially if these are people that if you dare question them, they will refuse to debate you, but also do anything within their capabilities to attack you and belittle you and destroy you in any way. I believe that if your ideas are correct, the best way to show that is to submit them to the rigor of a debate. I know trying to ban or censor people is the wrong way to go. I know that freedom of speech should be defended at every turn, and I will proudly defend and debate those ideals with anyone. In fact, I proudly consider myself a feminist, a choice feminist. I strongly believe it is a woman's right in our society to live her life on whatever terms she chooses. Modern feminists talk about how there is some greater power or womanhood you must submit yourself over to in order to be a feminist. For what purpose, I ask? Is not the purpose of feminism to empower women to live their own lives? Why then should they not choose to live on their own terms? Why must they submit to yours? The only reason you would be afraid of choice or a scenario that involves freedom 
is because you're afraid people are going to make choices you don't like. You want to control them. I, on the other hand, have no want to control women. I want them to live their lives to the fullest and do what makes them happy. This is what I want for my wife. This is what I want for all women. And this is what I want for all men. I don't care if a woman dreams of being a high-powered tech CEO or wants to live at home quietly and raise her family. I don't care if a woman wants to sleep with 10,000 men or no men at all. I don't care how a woman chooses to dress or what she chooses to say. She should be able to make those choices on her own terms and fulfill her own lifestyle, which makes her happy. Anyway, Yevgeny, thank you for writing in. I hope this answers your question. Now, our last question comes from Rich. He writes, Hi Spencer, I love the new show and I hope it works out for you. I wonder if I could ask you your thoughts on the issue of the UK referendum that is coming up in the UK. I am from the UK. I feel like the EU is a very good idea. And in order to solve problems, the world should come together and the EU is the best example of this. Following your tenant of things are complicated, my question is not that the EU should happen, but how it should be run. Because at the moment, it is just one big poker game, where it is definitely the case, if you don't know, who the fool is in the EU. The fool is you. The Republic of Ireland greatly benefits from the EU as it undermines the whole tax system of the EU by charging half the tax of any other nation. And Germany basically pushes Greece around and forces it to pay debts that it just could not pay. This is hardly a union of well-meaning and hopeful people. Thanks, Richard. You know what, Rich? That's an excellent question. And it's a question I don't have a good answer to. Because, quite frankly, I don't believe I have the expertise or knowledge to give a satisfactory answer. I just don't know enough about the inner workings and politics of the EU to give a good answer. The EU itself fascinates me because it is one of the most interesting developments of our time. Europe is a continent soaked in blood after millennia of conflict. Finally, it bands together in the first monetary and economic union of our time. Wow, how cool is that? So, I suspect if I lived in Britain, I would vote to remain in the European Union. Though, I suspect if I lived in Britain, I would be more informed about this issue and might have a different opinion about it, because I often talk with EU skeptics, or Euroskeptics, and the more I talk with them, the more I think they bring up good and interesting points. Sorry then, Rich, that I couldn't answer your question. But maybe someone else can. This is a topic I'm interested in learning more about myself. So... If anyone out there would like to weigh in on this debate, let me know. And next week, I will read out the best argument for the EU and how it should be run, and the best argument against the EU. Because if you're against it, 
obviously there's no change in which you could make to it that it would run adequately. So, that's it. That's the end of the show. Thank you, everyone, so much for writing in. And if you want to say anything about this show, please don't hesitate to submit your feedback by sending an email to spencer at npupodcast.com. I'm looking forward to next week's debate, and let me take you out now by reading our responses to last week's question, what is justice? This week's question is different than last week's, and it is about an earlier topic from the show. That is, do you believe that large monopolies of media conglomerates are a threat to freedom of speech? Why or why not? Thank you all so much again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Liam Smith says, I believe that justice is when someone has done something that they believe is morally right or just. However, I feel that someone's idea of justice is inherently subjective. For something to be just, all that someone must do is decree it as just. A common example of this is the death penalty. When one person might feel that death is the only punishment for murder, someone else's version of justice might view killing someone, no matter what they have done, as unjust. Therefore, I feel it is impossible to define something as just or unjust, as, no matter what it may be, there can always be someone who feels the opposite. Yartan writes and says, The question, what is justice, just like other questions that great philosophers that rival David Bowie have asked, such as, are we humans or dancers? Or what is love? Or baby don't hurt me, don't hurt me, no more. It is a bit nonsensical, but if you dig in, you can get surprisingly deep. And Tone writes, Justice for me is just a person getting what he deserves in accordance to his actions and the society he lives in. Pedrarin writes, I view justice as all those who commit set crimes should face the consequences for set crimes. No more, no less. That's it, everyone. Thank you, and good night. <laughs>